0: Hello folks, and welcome to Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Mark Twain once said, if you don't like the weather, wait 5 minutes. He said it originally, speaking about New England. Over time, however, it has become an old adage for many states, but most importantly about the fickle nature of Florida's weather. If you're in Orlando, my hometown, and you're going east on I-4, it could be raining on your side of the road and be completely clear going westbound. That's just how it is. Florida's social and political landscape is much the same. Things are always changing around here because of how unique our state is. We have so many different cultures... Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. That was me. Well, that was me from July 27th of 2018, a whole lifetime away in the past two and a half years. But that was our first episode and today is the 100th episode. Well. Kinda. Technically, it's the 100th episode. That does not include prologues, epilogues, or our mini series that we do between the seasons. And, of course, who could forget Tallahassee Tuesdays back in 2019? That was an experiment that got left behind. But realistically, it's at about 120-something episodes, but this is the 100th official, full-length, real episode of Wait 5 Minutes today is that actual episode, and I thought there was no better way to celebrate this exciting day than to celebrate the idea at the core of what this show was when it started. The show is founded on the idea of celebrating where I am, celebrating where you are, whether that's Florida or even somewhere much further away, outside of the state or even around the world. The joy is digging into the place that we are in, the city or the spot that we found ourselves, and the origins of that place, how the beginnings of the place that we live in are still visible to this very day. That was the core idea of Wait 5 Minutes when it was created. So with that in mind, I wanted to tell you about the origins of the city I moved to a few months ago, Sanford. Sanford is an extremely unique town in Florida in that you can learn pretty much everything you need to know about Florida's bizarre history in the last two centuries or so just from learning the history of Sanford. And I find that that can be true all over the state. You can learn a lot about the place you're in at large by learning the history of just one town. So for our 100th episode, that's exactly what we're going to do. If you've never visited Sanford, it really is a special little town. Now known for its massive quantity of antique shops and micro breweries, Sanford is a town in which most of the buildings along Main Street are historic sites in and of themselves. There is amazing coffee and tea shops, wonderful art and murals along the side streets, and maybe the best German restaurant in Florida at its heart. It's called Hollerbox. Look it up, trust me. Directly to the north is Lake Monroe, and the riverfront walk is quiet and lovely. To the south of downtown are dozens of gorgeous old southern houses, painted beautiful colors, all in unique styles. Some of these houses are many decades old, time and refurbishments hiding their original designs. I live a little further from downtown, out past the airport, but even here, the natural beauty of Lake Jessup's surrounding areas is such a sight. It feels like summer all year round, even when there's a chill drifting off the water. It's a beautiful place to live, and I find myself consistently wandering into downtown and just reading along the quiet streets, savoring the centuries of life baked into every brick laid into the street. I could spend a whole day just meandering from shop to shop. It's just a good place to be. Sanford was originally built along the St. John's River, an intentional choice by its founder, an American businessman and diplomat, a renaissance man to the extreme, Henry Shelton Sanford. Born in 1823, Henry Shelton Sanford was born into an industrial family in Connecticut, who made their money literally creating the brass tacks used in carpeting at the time. His father, Nehemiah, expected him to join up with the business proper, but Henry had no interest in the matter. Sanford eventually left his father's company in totality and focused in on his passion, diplomacy. He starts working throughout Europe as a diplomat to St. Petersburg, Frankfurt, Paris, and eventually Belgium back in America, he did some work arranging secret messages for union leaders through back channels during some of the Civil War. He had connections kind of everywhere. You can find Henry Shelton Sanford in the footnotes of many, many different stories internationally. When the Civil War ended, he bought what else but an orange grove in St. Augustine and became quickly enamored with the Sunshine State's potential for profit. He started buying up more land, and he eventually purchased a large sum near Lake Monroe, just off the St. Johns River. With that, in an almost impossibly simple beginning, the city of Sanford was born. He, of course, named it after himself. And one of the things that set Sanford apart is its design. It was created as a grid, like in Europe, so there's all these little blocks that are lined perfectly in squares. There's a map of it still hanging in the Sanford Museum today.
1: What do you do to make a town? Because Sanford was a planned town. We're really lucky to have a grid-based system. Henry Sanford liked that when he was in Europe. He wanted to make sure that we had that grid base that it's easy to transverse. He also found it important that we had city parks. He planned those in there.
0: That is Brigitte Stevenson, by the way, an exuberant historian and curator of the Sanford Museum. If you want to learn a lot about Sanford as a city, there is no better place to go than the Sanford Museum. That's where I visited a few weeks ago. When I visited, we spoke for over two hours, enough to fill four whole episodes. There is, after all, a lot to say about Sanford, and we'll return to some of those stories in other episodes down the line, but Brigitte is a bit of an expert on Sanford. Not just the city, but the man himself. We spent a long, long time in their exhibit dedicated to Sanford himself, full of portraits of his parents, of his children, collections of his writing and clothing and artifacts. The man was involved in so many different historical events, not just Europe and the American Civil War, but he had a direct connection to the atrocities committed in the Congo Free State in Africa. He was connected to the complicated politics of Belgium's famous king, Leopold I, and many, many important figures in American history knew Henry Sanford by name. Brigitte studied European history for her degree, and was stunned to find just how much of Europe's story Sanford was actually involved in. He was, without question, an extremely odd man. For example, he was experimenting with how to present himself on the international stage. European court attire was specific, and he wanted to represent his American character as best he could through his clothing.
1: You could wear a military outfit. That was considered acceptable for court. Okay. So what he does is during the American Civil War donates three Prussian cannons to the state of Minnesota. And that is how he gets the rank of general. So he could wear a general thing. Hence why I call him Mr. Sanford, not General Henry Shelton Sanford. Right. He technically was a general. And this was a huge problem. You, you see these stories of people writing because people are paying their way out to not be drafted in the American Civil War. There was this major distrust of wealthy people using basically their wealth to get ahead. And Henry Sanford's kind of an example of that. (laughs) Henry Sanford basically then dresses in his general regalia. The best part of the story is those three cannons still exist. The reason why they still exist in this, and they actually brought them all together for like one anniversary in the state of Minnesota, is because nobody knew how to use them. They were so high tech, for that time period. Oh god,
0: that's so funny. People are like, just, we they don't they want just... to use
1: it. They're just like, I don't have time to learn this whole new canon. Oh
0: god, that's funny. To
1: to do it. So, that's so they just makes sat on it... a box. Exactly. <sighs> oh Henry. Uh... Oh,
0: <laughs> the man had big ideas, and he wanted to have an impact any way he could. And his relationship to the city that bears his name is so bizarre. He hardly ever visited, but he saw value in what most people saw value in in Florida, citrus.
1: Originally, we were citrus, like many towns in Florida that were founded after reconstruction. You had Harriet Beecher Stowe writing about Florida, and all of a sudden you had the investors coming in. These investors heavily were into citrus. You have to remember, I think the best way to describe it is like, I still celebrate this tradition. But many people used to get an orange in the Christmas stocking. And that was supposed to be a representation of like that was a very expensive item. That was fruit. That's a sweet fruit. And so when you have this citrus boom that happens in Florida, again, this is a luxury good uh, that's coming. And so that's why it was hugely important. In fact, we have thousands of letters because Henry Sanford frequently, from his experimental groves, would ship citrus to major world leaders to be like, look at Florida. So we have stuff from Bismarck um, saying, thank you so much for the oranges, you know, princes from Europe and stuff like that. Oh, that's amazing. Um, that's gotta be
0: amazing for you. Yeah, exactly. That sort of <laughs> it's thing. just like,
1: oh, hello. And it's just a thank you letter for, for the citrus, but it shows how much at least Henry Sanford and others in Florida were trying to promote worldwide that hey, you can get this luxury good in Florida, it's not just the swamp.
0: With his European connections in place and this idea of what citrus could be stewing in his mind, Sanford believed that oranges could be the biggest source of income in this little town. He started promoting Sanford as the quote unquote gateway to South Florida. He saw profit in what it could be. The city was incorporated in 1877 and the city boomed, stretching out further and expanding its reaches as citrus brought more and more cash into the small lakeside town. This, of course, attracted the attention of Henry Plant. Henry Plant is the other railway mogul in Florida whose name just happens to be Henry. He spent the entirety of his post-Civil War career developing a net of railways and hotels across the state and even into some of our neighbors to the north. Not only was he buying up older railroads and connecting them through refurbishment, he was making it a connected network of transit where one could effectively move across the state from Jacksonville to Tampa and, of course, to Sanford. He needed hotels for this to be done and he would build them wherever there was an obvious city for him to develop one. Plant arrived to Sanford in 1883, bought the pre-existing railroad, and added it to his wider connection of transit through the state. In fact, when Plant was working to connect Tampa to Sanford, he had new construction done to build proper rail lines connecting the two cities. It was such an important piece of construction that the first spade of dirt dug for the project was done so by then-president Ulysses S. Grant, the former commander of the Union Army. The shovel that he used is in a glass case inside the sanford museum to this very day easily my favorite artifact in the building this region was so important in its movement of agriculture and plant saw it as a fitting jewel to add to his crown clearly he saw something even more special in the city because he planted even more roots he built the pico hotel Pico, meaning the Plant Investment Company, was Plant's financial branch, designed to operate the purchases and business side of Plant's sprawling empire. They built structures up around the city of Sanford, including a train depot and the Pico Hotel, which would serve as the spot for travelers to take up residence en route to wherever they were headed next. It's hard to imagine it now, but at one time, most of this area of downtown Sanford, now populated with antique shops and independent restaurants, was once the heart of a Plant Railway complex. There were warehouses, a train station, a hotel, and a railroad, all owned and operated by Henry Plant. Then, fire destroyed most of this area in 1887, except for the Pico Hotel, some of the railway houses, and even the depot. They all still stand in the area today. The depot is a unique artifact, actually. Today, it's basically a local food court with various dining options inside as well as a bar out back. It's called Henry's Depot and Plant's mustachioed face gleams from the front sign. The Pico Hotel still stands, its huge brick structure hidden from the main drag. Its classic onion dome was destroyed by a hurricane some years ago, but there it is, still standing. But that fire was just the beginning. Yellow fever devastated the population in 1888, and a two-handed freeze in the winter of 1894 and 95 effectively ended the citrus industry statewide. The hub of citrus that Sanford once was, was over.
1: And unfortunately for us and genealogists, that's when everybody leaves. So you see this huge migration that happens in Sanford, and unfortunately the 1890 census burnt down. So the 1890s is this interesting gap that we have that we're always trying to fill in because it's kind of some of our original townsfolk because 1877 was when we were incorporated. And from what we can tell, Sanford was hugely cosmopolitan. And then they just leave. They go usually to Tampa or Jacksonville or one of the other big cities in the area.
0: Plant's investments were still intact, but without citrus, the city didn't have a main export to stand on. It was time to start from scratch, which is why in 1896, the city became entirely invested in a new produce, celery.
1: But the people who did stay all went to celery, (laughs) which was another luxury good. As I I was was discussing before, it used to be like the avocado of the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
0: The city of Sanford was left in the dust after the Great Freeze. Upwards of 3,000 residents fled town for greener pastures, literally, leaving the farmland empty and the city looking for new ways to survive. By sheer chance, celery was growing in popularity, and by the turn of the century, celery was actually considered a luxury food, eaten by high-class people in fancy dining establishments. Someone, somewhere in the city, started growing celery, though there are several diverging narratives as to who.
1: There's three different people that are suspected to be our our first celery. There's one that's like this folksy story that a woman, there used to be a thing where like your Congress official would like send you seeds. Okay. And then everyone's like, celery won't work in Florida because you know, most of celery at that time was grown up in Michigan. Sure. And she grew and it and it grew like gangbusters. And so everybody, it's like, that's some—that's the folksy story. Yeah. The Terwilligers are another part of it. I think they're like the second family to really get involved yeah. with it, but they were known for their irrigation system. They owned a concrete company at one point and they made these pockets so you could basically swamp the land wow. to make it grow better. So the Terwilligers, I would say, are the ones who really fine tuned the celery industry.
0: But there's another man who is perhaps the one most likely to be the origins of celery's importance in the city. See, he was growing celery before the Great Freeze ended citrus. His name was J.N. Whitner.
1: From what we can tell, he was already somebody that was invested in agriculture at the time. He was experimenting with different things. It just, for me, even though out of those three people, each one of them kind of claim it, he's the one that makes the most sense to me and what I can find. Because he's writing in agriculture journals, even when we're having the citrus industry, that celery might be a good choice for us.
0: Soon enough, the town bore its own brand new nickname, Celery City. To this very day, celery's prominence in our history is scattered in odd places. You can see names and images connected to celery everywhere. The Sanford Museum has a huge display case filled to the brim with celery paraphernalia. The pillars outside of the museum proper have bright green celery stalks at the top as if celery itself is holding the building up. One major roadway through the neighborhoods around downtown Sanford is called Celery Avenue. One of the many, and I mean many, microbreweries in town is called Celery City Craft. An early baseball team in Sanford back in 1919 was a minor league baseball team called the Sanford Celery Feds. That's F-E-D-S. Celery Feds. As if their sheer athletic power did not come from their natural strength, but from the power that Sanford's original celery had provided for them. The city of Sanford bought all in on their branding as the Celery City, and they never, ever looked back. Part of what drew me to creating this show in the first place was our unique stories. Stories exactly like Celery City. When I started making it a hundred episodes ago, I imagined this idea of all the fun, bizarre strangeness I would soon discover. Fascinating stories of inventive, brilliant people who took the hardships of nature, of life, of historical tides, and made something incredible out of that next major part of their legacies. These steps are interconnected. They move in and out, weaving a tapestry of hardship and of pain and of kindness, creativity, individuality, and strength. That's what makes Florida, Florida. And in Sanford's tapestry, as fascinating and colorful and vibrant as it is, there is a mark on its soul that may never come out. At the same time as celery was growing in its power in this region, an important figure named Forest Lake came to town and started a trend of pain that lasts to this day. Forrest Lake was born in South Carolina, married in Orlando, and eventually was elected the mayor of Sanford in the mid-1890s.
1: He owned an ice house that here. He was one who really kind of made it that people were able to kind of ship off and that's how he made his fortune but he eventually sold it and became a president of a bank here okay but he she was really kind of invested in expanding sanford there was an area called sanford heights that developed that was near 20th street that he wanted to have annexed as well as goldsboro goldsboro is like eatonville it was a town founded by the black population and it was made for it and it was doing well
0: Eatonville, in case you are unaware, is a town within Orlando that was founded in the late 19th century, arguably the first Black-founded municipality in the country. Goldsboro in Sanford was built with the same intention, only a few years after Eatonville was founded a few miles south. Though its population floated around only a hundred citizens, it was an independent Black community right next door to Sanford. For decades, the town prospered, until Forest Lake decided he wanted to absorb the city and make it part of Sanford, effectively removing their independence as a community. By 1911, Forest Lake was no longer the mayor, he was a member of the state legislature, and tensions were rising in Sanford proper. Sanford Heights decided they were no longer interested in being part of the city of Sanford, and they seceded. This was due to Sanford's failings to provide proper municipal care to some of these neighborhoods. Forest Lake, with the power of the state legislature, fought back.
1: And Forest Lake was like, I want it. And it's really heartbreaking because he's also the state representative for Florida at this time, too. He's one of the state reps. So he went up to Tallahassee to annex it. And the same day we have in the newspaper, the Towns of Goldsboro being like, please don't do this. We know how to manage our city, like our town. Like, please let us have our town. And it's forcibly annexed. And this is still a a bitter history in Sanford.
0: In a swift move, Forrest annexes Sanford Heights, along with the black shopping district named Georgetown, as well as the town of Goldsboro. To add insult to injury, the names of the streets were changed. Notably, Clark Street, named for the founder of Goldsboro, William Clark, was changed to Lake Avenue for the man who stole Goldsboro from its residence. Forest Lake's career would come to an end when he was eventually arrested for embezzlement just a few years later, but his name remained on the street he stole for a little over a hundred years. After the Second World War, the Negro League had black baseball players finally making their way into the minor and major leagues, which were mostly populated by white players. Jackie Robinson, the famous black baseball player who would eventually go on to break the color barrier in Major League Baseball, tried to play a game here, in Sanford, at an old baseball stadium that still stands just outside of town. In the section of the museum dedicated to sports, stars, and history, Brigitte points to a newspaper clipping about when Jackie came to the Celery City.
1: We don't know what exactly happens. This is the one newspaper article we've been able to find and it's found in Montreal. It's the Gazette in Montreal. That's, what's kind of wild about it. It was not reported down here in Sanford or anything, but basically the police chief asked for Jackie Robinson to leave and he left. He did not complete a game. He left. And again, some people can it's like it was a mob of people, not from what we can tell. We can tell that it was probably the police was like, no,
0: I would heard many different versions of this story, of a mob locking the gates, but it was likely more simple, more quietly insidious than that. Jackie was supposed to break the minor league color barrier here, in Sanford, but Sanford's sheriff blocked him. Jackie would instead go on to play his first real integrated baseball game in Daytona a few days later. By the 1950s, a man named Harry T. Moore had founded a branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in Brevard County, just east of here. He was eventually the president of the state chapter. He fought to protect the Groveland Four during the late 1940s and promoted civil rights throughout the state. The Ku Klux Klan soon focused their attention on him and literally blew up his house on Christmas Day, 1951. He had to travel from Brevard County to Sanford because no one would care for him due to his race. One version of the story said he was rushed to a hospital in Sanford, but the story is a little more simple than that.
1: And this is one of the doctors was Dr. George Stark, who was a prominent figure in town. He was one of our first black doctors and not only that, he went to Harvard and was one of only four black students of that class. Wow. He was beloved by the community. He basically, he not only tried to help improve race relations within you know city politics, he made He was part of boards and that sort of thing. He cared for everyone.
0: Because he needed to get to Dr. Stark, and because Dr. Stark was in Sanford, the transit worsened Moore's condition, and he died en route to care. And nine years ago, this month, in a neighborhood not too far from where I live, a 17-year-old black teenager named Trayvon Martin was shot and killed while walking back to the apartment where he was staying with his family. The fallout in the community and against the Sanford Police Department drew national attention and eventually led to the creation of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, when the man who killed Trayvon, George Zimmerman, was acquitted in the summer of 2013. In the wake of this, Sanford started to reckon with its history this trend of things that had happened. The city had formally apologized for forcing Jackie Robinson out of town many years earlier back in 1997. The Goldsboro Museum had opened in 2011, honoring the legacy of that neighborhood, and in early 2013, in the midst of this case, the changed road names of old Goldsboro were changed back. Lake Avenue was now Clark Avenue, undoing, at least in some small part, the erasure of years past. But it wasn't enough. Sanford had to deal with all the pain baked into its history to reckon with the tragic truth. The problems never went away. Brigitte tells me that one of the goals of the Sanford Museum, which partners with the Goldsboro Museum and the Museum of Seminole County History, is to tell those stories more, to facilitate these conversations about the things we have forgotten, to undo the erasure of years gone by. Sanford is a place that is constantly riding the tides of the world around it, just as the state of Florida is at large. Collecting it and telling the story truthfully is our responsibility. At the Sanford Museum, at least, that job falls to Brigitte and her staff.
1: But history is this tapestry, and it's interesting to see in Sanford how many threads we have in that weave, and they're all connected, and that's that's history for you.
0: Everywhere you look in Florida, you can find stories a lot like the ones in Sanford, the good and the bad. These things are built in to life in Florida, and acting like one exists and the other doesn't, it's just wrong. It's incorrect. It's factually incorrect. We have to tell the whole story. The whole picture must be seen. I was naive when I created this show. I wanted to talk about Florida every day and celebrate our individual spirit, and I still do. I'm proud of that. I'm proud that people tell me all the time how much this show makes them love Florida more. That means everything to me. Every time I sit down to write this show, I'm thrilled to see what I will discover. But it is not always a simple story. Every spot in Florida is marred in heartache and pain of some kind, whether that is bigoted violence or brutal war or casual hatred or political corruption or environmental degradation. To love something fully is to understand its failings, and it would be a flaw to tell you that I think Florida is perfect. I don't think Florida is perfect. It is very, very imperfect. And I've spent the last 100 episodes learning just how imperfect this place is. But that is what pulls me back. Those stories of the things we got wrong, of the things we can get right. How far we've come, how far we have yet to go. I hope that 100 episodes from now, however long away that is, the tales of injustice that we are still writing today feel like a memory. One that we are leaving behind. I really, really hope for that. But until then, I will keep finding those imperfections. And I will keep trying to do my level best to share them with you. We cannot move forward without acknowledging where we've been. That's why history exists. That's why we remember it. That's why the Sanford Museum is there. That's why this podcast is here. That's why everyone I've talked to in the last two and a half years does what they do so we can grow, so we can get better. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to the show and this is your first episode, welcome. There are some wonderful stories this season already for you to go back and listen to. Our prologue and our premiere just came out last week and the week before. Go back and give those a listen. If you're looking for even more episodes, our most recent season from the end of 2020 is amazing. I highly recommend those episodes. Interestingly, a lot of what we talked about in this episode is actually connected to other stories. I mentioned that Jackie Robinson went on to break the color barrier in Daytona. Well, I actually talked about that about one year ago, so there's a link to that episode below along with a link to the story of how Henry Plant came to prominence alongside his friendly rival, Henry Flagler. If you did enjoy this episode or any of the last 100 episodes, please consider leaving a 5-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. You can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. Check those out. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Brigitte Stevenson from the Sanford Museum. I had such a good chat talking with her. And actually we talked so much and there's so much stuff that's on the cutting room floor from this episode that I had to make a second episode. I I couldn't not. Brigitte told me so many amazing stories that there's gonna be a bonus episode on Friday that is just all of the fascinating tidbits that I couldn't fit into the narrative of this episode. So check that out on Friday, you're going to love it you are going to want to go to the Sanford Museum immediately. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, if you're hearing this on the day that it comes out, it is the day after the Super Bowl. Well, next week, I want to tell you a little bit more about the Super Bowl, except a different Super Bowl and a night that America has never forgotten. That's next week, the Big Sombrero. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside and, please, drink more water. Thank you so much for the past 100 episodes. Seriously, thank you. I cannot wait to see what the next 100 episodes will bring.